And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Welcome to My Public Life as an American Nerd. I am your host, David K. Montoya. All right, gang, welcome back. And I've got a little – well, it, things are going to be a little different this round. Um, I'm not going to really – well, I'm not going to at all. Not, not I was going to say really, but not at all. We're going to talk about anything geeky or nerdy. Um, we're going to get into something serious. But before I do that, I want to get into my – well, first I want to say I, my apologies for missing last week. Uh, fortunately, it was something that I was able to fix. My computer – well, okay, let me back up a little bit. When I did the interview slash you know, uh, guest with my sister Rebecca the, the last week that I recorded, I noticed that there was skipping – in the, com- the the computer, so I would say something, then all of a sudden it would just cut out, and then she would say something, and then it was cut out, and I I had to do a lot of editing to to try to make it flow, and it was brought to my attention by a couple people that it was very noticeable, and the, it was just running really really bad, and I think I might have picked up. A, a virus or something because at first I thought it was just like, uh, you know, the Facebook, Facebook, every time I got on like Facebook, um, it just, it, it did not even want to load. So I ended up trying to reset the computer back to windows seven because this is an oldie. Um, I have an old Toshiba satellite and it was, it was actually bought for me from my wife, my late wife for my Let's see, what would that have been? Uh, 35th birthday. So 2012 would have been 35th birthday. And I've had it ever since. And I've I've just upgraded. And it's been a great machine. And I've done, believe it or not, all our podcasts, except the very first, like, two um, in the JZO Modcast Podcast Network, has been off this machine. So I was like, well, maybe it's time for me to go ahead and just get a new computer but then i decided well all right let me see what i can do so i tried to go and reset it back to um system restore interesting enough windows 10 the new windows 10 does not let you do that so i actually had to go in through dos and i and i didn't even know how to do get into dos i actually had to look online to find you know the the prompt so I was able to get in there and do a restart or reset rather, and it reset it to Windows 7. Now I'm not 100% certain that I I don't even I'm not even sure what Windows I'm running, but it's working. It's it looks like it's working great. So I'm I'm recording now. I, this is coming out later because uh, obviously it's not going to come out on Wednesday at midnight because it's right now as I'm recording it is 12:30 in the morning um there's just well number one we are really crunching the world of myth 
the world of myth has just become so huge and we're we're literally going to cut it right down to the wire and it's going to be a, a great magazine it's going to be with issue 77 our halloween issue and it's just going to be fantastic and so i i kind of had to do that plus there was some some personal things that i i've been dealing with and it's been it's becoming more and more prominent in my life and i keep my personal problems or my personal life in general pretty much tight-lipped i just you know, I, I'm just not one of those people that like to go on Facebook and, and talk about things. And it's just, and in fact, I'm still not even going to. I'm, I'm going to allude to them like I'm doing now, but I'm not actually going to talk to them, talk about them. But it does bring me into what we are going to do today. Now, I met a gentleman of has probably been a month, two months ago. His name was is he's he's still you know. Uh, active. His name is Scott Silverman, and he is my favorite title. Is he was a former unlicensed pharmacist, and that is just what it implies. He he used to be a, a dealer, and he turned his life around and got his act you know straightened up and and he now is a a uh, crisis coach and in fact he's won awards he's won like a cnn award um and he's published author and he's a published speaker or not you know not published speaker but a speaker and he deals with people and their addictions now i deal with people on a regular basis who have an addiction and I've I've tried to you know talk to them and coach them, and in fact there, there's a podcast with me trying to help someone with their addiction. And at this point in time, I've come to realize there is absolutely not a damn thing I can do to help them. And I wish there was a way that I could have Scott contact these people. But I, I know that the first step of recovery is acceptance, and neither even identify that there's a problem. And like I said, I deal with them on a daily basis. I deal with these guys, and um, that is kind of what inspired me because it, their 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 addiction came to forefront today. And in fact, to the point where I literally had to stop doing what I was doing, and Take care of them and deal with them and then just kind of – again, I don't want to get into personal things. So um, I was gone most of the, the evening after my, my daughter came home from school. So we came back, and this is why I'm recording late. And I was like, well, I could do you know a regular who's the boss – or excuse me, not who's the boss. A, uh, my life is a public nerd. And – I was like, no, there, there's because of the circumstances. I feel like there, there needs to be something said. So why I said who's the boss is because uh, not too long ago I had an interview with uh, Mr. Silverman, and let me take a peek here, and that was episode fifty-one back uh, very the first uh, October first, in fact, 
uh, is when it aired. And it, it just, it was really profound. And it, it's um, something that I feel that I'm going to circulate again. And you know me, I, I don't usually reuse content, but I, I think it's a, an important enough message to, to recirculate. So go ahead, sit back. This is going to be serious. And if you know someone, if you have a loved one with an addiction, you might want to jot down. He's literally going to give you his cell phone number. And he challenges you. You know, if you know somebody or you yourself have an addiction, he challenges you, no matter the time of the day, to give him a call. So, originally aired October 1st, 2019, this is my interview with the former unlicensed pharmacist, Scott Silverman. Enjoy. This is David K. Montoya. All right, gang, we are back for another week. And this week, we're going to take a little serious uh, turn. I know the last few has been kind of fun and upbeat, but I, I feel like this gentleman's story, as it is very serious, the content that it's going to be talked about is a serious approach. Um, it needs to be talked about. So he is a California native as well. And let's see, let's just take a peek at all the things he does. He, he runs a treatment center. He is a crisis coach. Um, he all in, all around nice guy. I had an opportunity to speak with him the other day, and he's just really, really uh, genuine person. Please introduce Mr. Scott H. Silverman. Welcome, sir. Thanks, thanks, Dave. Nice to be here. I do appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us, and and I will talk about uh, entrepreneurship because that's what this show does. Is we talk about uh, you know people being entrepreneurs, but one of the things that grabbed me was that. You have an amazing backstory and where you where you started to where you are now. So for myself and for the listeners, will you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. By the way, one of the classifications I got in, in probably, you know, in my late forties, uh, I was classified as social entrepreneur. Oh, okay. Um, and what I did was help uh build human capital through a mechanism that we could talk about the, you know, it's not today, 11 times. So entrepreneurship is something that I'm really connected to and intimate about. And, you know, sometimes in my field, I talk about the business of recovery. And so a little bit about me, grew up in San Diego, family of uh, four kids, you know, family ran a business. I was part of it and always, you know, involved with trying to, you know, find ways to develop a strong work ethic, connectivity to family, making family important and being in family that was important as well. And, and I've always been in San Diego, still reside here. I, my oldest daughter moved back here after her college experience and my youngest is living in LA. My wife grew up here as well. So we, we love our community and we're very active in, in a variety of different levels. So, you know, the trajectory of my life is very simple. Uh, like most people, you know, going to school, things are going fine, but you know, I had a couple of hiccups. I had some issues going on when I was a kid. I got in trouble. One of my classic stories is in second grade, one of my buddies had gone on a skiing trip with his family. He broke his leg, so he was out of school for a couple of weeks. We're talking second grade now. So he gets out of the, you know, 
hospital with the fracture. He's got a cast on, gets his cast off, comes back to school. First day back at school, we're, you know, saying hello to each other and high-fiving. And he takes off his shoe and he throws it at me, you know, for the playground. So I pick it up, throw it back at him. And, you know, I happen, I happen to hit his fracture and I refractured his leg. Oh, no. Awesome. So the spotlight immediately came on to my behavioral uh, issues in second grade. So I was escorted to the principal's office. My parents were brought in. So that was kind of my first introduction to everybody meets Scott. We're going to keep an eye on Scott. And it was determined after that that maybe I need to go to a school with smaller classes. And that's where they sent me. Anyway, so fast forwarding fifth grade, I had a teacher. I uh, won't even go into details. People want to know. They can call me. Uh, he has a heart attack because of some things that were going on, we thought, in the classroom. So I'm in my next class. The principal comes and gets me and says, you need to step out. You know, the police are here. Your teacher, Mr. Krebs, just had a heart attack. And we understand that there was something going on in the back of the room with you and some of your friends. And if he passes away, you could be responsible. I'm 12 years old. Eh? 12. And they're telling me that I could be accused of, you know, involuntary manslaughter of a teacher in a private school. Wow. So clearly I was having some self-esteem issues and suffering from some high level of insecurity. And, you know, obviously I was getting profiled now. And, you know, so things kind of continued along. And then I was moved out of that school, moved to another school, and then brought back to this other school. And then eventually in my mid-teens, I was sent away to a special school in Arizona, hopefully with the idea that, you know, they kind of wrap their arms around me and I would get more focused one-on-one, fully embedded into the education process. Worst scholastic year I've had in my whole career. So came home, went to summer school, got kicked out my second day, smoking cigarettes in the bathroom. And it's like, you know, like, God, why can't I get over this? And then, you know, settled down a little bit and then started getting uh, involved with substance abuse and alcohol. And we all kind of know where that goes if you keep doing it. And I did. And Things got, you know, a little worse after high school, but I was working, you know, still working hard. So I had that work ethic and I was partying hard and things just kind of accelerated into my 20s and kind of evolved with all kinds of variety of different substances. And if you really want to know, I'll give you a list, Dave, but I don't think it's really relevant. Um, and then, you know, when I hit age 30, I crashed and burned and I was lucky. Um, I tried to take my own life, but I had enough it was divine intervention that prevented that from happening. And I was able to get into treatment, get help, and took directions and suggestions, which was unusual. And I got sober back in 1984, actually November 13th. So I'm coming up on, all goes well, 35 years this year. I'm pretty excited about it. And I have done everything I can since I got clean and sober to be of service to others and to find ways to get involved with um, helping others. And now I'm professionally involved with helping others, running a treatment center, crisis coach now, family navigator. And what I try to do is help families identify the highest and best level of care for their loved ones. And that's kind of my, you know, my entrepreneurial part now that's coming back around again. So it's very exciting to be in this field of helping others but do it professionally because now I have entrees to, you know, the county, the state, federal opportunities, and I'm classified as a subject matter expert here in San Diego, which means I get a chance to go on with media and do what I'm doing with you and talk about it, hopefully get more of the word out to not only reduce stigma, but also engage families to, you know, find ways to navigate 
to get the best level of care and support for their loved ones. That's kind of that, that's my bio, real quick there for you, my friend. So, what else can I tell you? <laughs> you, yeah, that was gold. Um, so, at what point did you decide that that's what you wanted to dedicate your life to in helping people? What was the what was the aha moment for you? That's a that's a great question, and I would say going back to when I first got clean. Uh, I was asked to leave the family business. I mean, I, I was so dysfunctional at the end and it was the, the experts at the time said, you know, your, your work pace, I was working a hundred hours a week, seven days a week. That's what I did. And then when I wasn't working, I was under the influence. It was suggested that I find a new career. And so I took a year off, you know, I went on state disability. I went down to the state vocational rehab office. I got evaluated. And I'm sitting there, you know, in line with everybody else. And here I come from this family, you know, business, middle class, upper middle class. And I'm starting all over again at, at 30, 31. And I had all these diagnostic tests and, you know, the psych evaluations and skill set evaluations. It was determined I should become a welder down at the shipyard here. And I love working with my hands, which is why I think that was an outcome. But that was nothing like what I was brought up for or trained for. And so I just kind of stayed out of work for about a year and started, you know, volunteering at the treatment center I went to. And eventually after four years of doing that, they offered me a job. And, um, that's what happens when you volunteer, don't go away. Eventually you get offered a job, which by the way, is a guy who teaches people how to go get, keep jobs in my nonprofit I ran. Uh, that's what we teach people. Become a volunteer. You get to meet everybody when you're a volunteer. So in the eighties, I was just kind of getting involved with, doing some housing and working in the hardened neighborhood. I did a, I had a specialty then. It was called drug and gang eradication because back in the 80s, that's when crack cocaine was just running rampant and drive-by shootings were starting and mm. we're still carrying, still carrying pagers and going to pay phones, you know, to respond to our page. And my job kind of grew out of, you know, bought a little duplex and I um, was having difficulty with neighbors. You know, they were, selling drugs, people got addicted, they stopped paying rent. So I, I had the skill, as a, I used to be an unlicensed pharmacist, so I understood the mindset, you know, of the customer out there, who the consumer who was trying to get in to try to buy drugs from, you know, renters next door. So I started talking with them about, look, take your business somewhere else. You know, you're impacting my residents, and they didn't want to do that. So I got really good at negotiating with drug dealers to stop selling drugs, eventually got hired by property management companies and banks to go in and negotiate with drug dealers to leave the property. You know, I used to wear body armor and was well protected. And this, I did all this in civilian. I don't talk about this very much. It's in my book, though, but I don't talk about it much. That's and actually really coming up, high. by the way. <laughs> what, what, what's that? I said that's actually coming up, by the way. Yeah. So it was... Um, it was really exciting work, really. You know, I was working 11 at night to 4 in the morning, you know, walking around neighborhoods that most people shouldn't even be walking around in and um, trying to get people to stop selling drugs to the residents and got really good at it. And I established quite a business, did that for about 8 or 10 years. And then I wanted to do something different because it was getting a little unsafe because everybody was carrying, you know, fully automatic weapons back in those days. And I ended up starting a nonprofit. And that's where I really took my social entrepreneurship to a whole new level. That's very cool. Now, 
as you just brought up, and I, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and tap into this now, is you wrote a book called Tell Me No, I Dare You, which I love the name of that title. Um, and it, it, it's about your experience, am I correct, about the, the travels and the journeys that you've gone through? And the people that I've served and worked with and that I've helped and who have helped me. Correct. The, the concept of the book is how to get the yes. So it's tell me no, I dare you. But the whole journey and you know the, the whole book itself is woven into a pathway of how to get to yes. And more importantly, what to do with no. Because as kids and as young people and as people who are uncertain or not sure, when we ask questions growing up, the answer we usually got was no. You're not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You're not athletic enough. You're not skilled enough. You know, you're not the right, you know, gender. You're not the right, co whatever it was. And seven out of 30 shows, seven out of 10 people who are told no, stop. And they don't move forward. They get stuck or they just decide that somebody else is smarter than they are. So they don't. They don't move forward. They change direction. And sometimes changing directions is important. But a lot of times when somebody tells you no, it's because of their own um, prejudicial thinking or their own fear or their own inability to grasp, you know, what's real and how to move forward. So I encourage people to follow their heart and to talk with people who are, you know, perceived as smarter than they are or have been there and done that. Mentors, you know, captains, coaches, faith-based leaders, doctors, lawyers, family members, people who you look at and go, you know, I, I like what they're doing. You know, Text them, befriend them on Facebook, uh, meet them on Instagram and ask questions rather than just take everything you see for what it is. Say, you know, I saw you on, can I ask you a question? So I try to create the, you know, the, the vacuum, get out of the vacuum, get out of the silo and get onto the, you know, the main street and ask questions and find out what it is you need to do to carve your path for your life. That is so cool. Now, where can, uh, my listeners find that book. They can go to my website, um, in uh, yourcrisiscoach.com, yourcrisiscoach.com, uh -huh. and I sell it through my website, and that's the easiest, fastest way. And you know, because what, it's funny the way it works for me with with uh, Amazon, which is a big one. They don't keep an inventory, so when someone queries them, I have to send my book to them. They send it to you. So it's it's better to get directly from me, and I'll send it the next day. So yourcrisiscoach.com, or they can just Google me, Scott H. Silverman, or I'm going to give them my phone number. That's okay, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. My phone my phone number is 619-993-2738. Now that, again, 619-993-2738, because all the work that I do, my coaching, my mentoring, my working with others, 90% of it is done by phone. So wherever your audience is or listeners are, or they've got family back east or even overseas, they can either email me through my website, they can Google me on the Internet, or they can text or call me directly. Because one of the things I love is I love talking to people and building relationships, being a resource. And this phone number that I gave out, by the way, is the cell phone that I'm talking to you on right now. It's my personal cell phone. I'm the only one who answers it. You know, maybe one day, the phone will overwhelm me, and it might take me more than a day or two to get back to you. But I assure you, you reach out to me, I'll respond to you. Very cool. Now, 
I, I did have a, a also a side question that we touched on briefly because I know you were in a hurry yesterday. Um, what are your thoughts about this whole vaping uh, thing that's happening right now? Well, the, the thing that concerns me the most right now about vaping is the fact that, you know, there's over 450 people right now in hospitals all around the country, all around the country. So something happened. There's either been some introduction of a chemical or some sort of chemical blend or something that's going on right now that nobody knows about as of two days ago, you know, in the middle of September 2019. No one's been able to say this product came from this lab or this, you know, developer or this group manufactured in this community don't touch it you know it's like when you know you the fda is involved and they make everybody put dates and expiration things but if they have like a bad lettuce crop or you know a group of chickens that got this or cows that were infected or some sort of a bottle drink that you know was somehow contaminated because of machine you know and they code it track it but a lot of these products are not going through formal you know distributors a lot of people are making it their own brews and selling it you know like microbreweries so I'm concerned because nobody knows. And doctors, Surgeon General, FDA, you know, Center for Disease Control, no one's been able to pinpoint what's going on. So my reaction to that question is, you know, don't don't keep doing something if the risk factor is so high and it's unknown. It's like driving your car in the dark. Why would you ever do that? Right. And that's what some people are risking right now. And, you know, I remember when vaping was created, and I believe part of the reason it was created was to replace people who are smoking tobacco to reduce the risk of cancer. So I know there's a lot of young people out there that will hear this or hear about it and go, I'm not giving up vaping. And that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is be very careful what pipe you've got, what, what mechanism you're using to introduce whatever products that you're purchasing and make sure you know where you're getting those products. There was a couple of kids, I understand, busted recently I think in the last three days, I don't remember what part of the country, Midwest, I want to say, and they were making their own brew for vaping. So that's new. That's different. And their brew contained THC, you know, the, the main chemical in marijuana. Right. So is that the issue right now? Nobody knows that for sure. They're not sure if it's THC. They're not sure if it's some sort of other, you know, um, blend of chemicals. They're not even sure if it's the pipe itself. The, the portal used to bring the product into the lungs. And what's fascinating to me is the problem seems to be residing with the lungs, which means whatever they're taking in somehow isn't impacting the throat, the mouth, the gums, the teeth. So uh, that's the scary part for me is nobody knows. And when you hear something like that, that's like, how could that possibly be? As smart as we are as a planet, we don't know. Well, right now we don't. So that's what I want to caution people is very, very careful. Also, there's been mention, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is that they're saying that for the first time ever, there's never been a gateway to marijuana, but they're actually saying that for young kids, young adults, teenagers that are vaping is actually becoming a gateway into smoking marijuana. Is is that a fact, or is that just something that's out there on the internet? I, I'm hearing it from families, and I work with a lot of families. I'm hearing it from moms specifically who are talking about their kids who said to their mom, you know, I'm vaping. And because when you think about it, 
you know, when you say vaping, you know, you, you're vaporizing a chemical. Well, most of the chemicals that people are vaporizing have nicotine in them. And there are different vaping products where you can buy different levels of infusion of nicotine. So, for example, some might be 5%, some might be 10%, some might be 15%. And I'm using percentage as an easy way to explain what I'm talking about. So, in a sense, you're getting nicotine into these vaping mechanisms, even though they're flavored. And nicotine, technically, is chemically, is addicting. And what's happening is kids are smoking in the morning to kind of get their day going. They're taking it during break time. Then in the afternoon, someone's, you know, elevating their consumption to THC because when you come down from tobacco, your body kind of craves something else or wants more of it. And then it's the gateway. So I believe it's a gateway. It's interesting because there's studies around marijuana, which was always classified, if you will, by half of the researchers as a gateway drug. And the other half said, no, it wasn't. So either way, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, and is it a fact based on the current anecdotal and experiential information coming from parents and kids, it is a gateway. Wow. That's, that's something that I think a people, a couple that I know, uh, people that listen to the show that, that may be something that they need to, to think about, especially with letting their, their kids vape. Um, I know uh, originally it was produced on the market as a, as a harmless alternative, but you know, the, the, the pictures that are popping up with kids in the hospital and uh, you know, evidence just doesn't lie and it's there. It's in front of you and there's something that needs to be done, even if it's just as simple as more research. And research, unfortunately, takes time. I mean, I understand that. And by the way, it's not just kids ending up in the hospital. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as of within four days ago, uh, they've identified four uh, deaths related to vaping. So, and even through the autopsies, they're not finding something that they can put their, their hands on or they're not saying. I'm not sure, but what we don't have is that information yet. And, you know, when you think about it, Juul, with the, the company Juul, who probably, I guess, has one of the largest market shares of the vaping pipes and products, I believe, you know who they're owned by, right? No. Philip Morris. Ah, uh, okay. The tobacco, the tobacco company, who, in my opinion, were the originators of the vaping mechanism to replace the consumer who stopped smoking their tobacco products. Yeah. Talk about entrepreneurship. They, I mean, here they lose a market share because their product's killing people. Then they create a new product, which is deemed as much safer, much healthier. And then, you know, now we're looking at side effects or effects from, and I'm not saying they're responsible for that, but at the end of the day, they're the ones I think the FDA is talking to going, look, the president wants everyone to stop selling these vaping products and the chemicals. And I don't think as a business, they're just going to take, a, and I say this tongue in cheek, only, you know, seven or eight deaths is a, a reason to change the marketplace. And here's what's fascinating to me. Eight people, I believe the number is eight as of two days ago, have died because of vaping. Right now in the United States, okay, Roughly 240 people die every single day, 240 people every single day behind prescription opioids and street opioids. Okay. We're not talking methamphetamine. We're not talking alcohol. We're not talking suicide. We're just talking 
overdosing and dying from opioids, prescription and street opioids, heroin, benzos, and others. 240 a day. That is a plane crash. Yeah. We don't even talk, we don't even talk about that anymore. The media does not want to discuss that anymore. It's not that they don't care. It's just become so commonplace. You know, you think about that on a 30 day month. You know, that's what, 7,200 people. You know, and when I, when people call me and go, Hey, Scott, we'd like you to come speak to our group, but we won't have any availability for about 90 days. I take the three months times the 7,200 and I realize, you know, 24,000 people are going to die between now and my next presentation. And that just makes me sad. It just makes me sad that there isn't a sense of urgency. And then there, you know, and look, I, I, I say that anecdotally, meaning there are tons of families out there and organizations working on trying to create change and build awareness and prevention. But in my opinion, you know, we shouldn't be doing anything other than focusing on how we encourage our children and their friends to try to look at the decision-making process that they're utilizing currently around what it is they're doing. You know, you hear stories, kids go to parties, everybody brings their own stuff, they put it in a bowl, and, you know, within half an hour, everybody gets there, everyone wants to go back to the bowl and grab something and, and eat it. It's like, what? You have no idea what you're taking, but you're taking it. And then we read about, you know, somebody overdosing or a group of kids dying from a, an event they were at in a small community or a large city. That just bothers me. The most horrific story I've heard recently is babies are being born and they're supposed to be crying for milk for drugs. They're crying for opioids. There was an article a week ago and I read that it took me three days to recover from that. Mm. Just horrible. That's, yeah. Especially babies. Um, yeah. And by the way, I'd love to be an entrepreneur who comes up with alternatives and antidotes to help people stay alive. Wouldn't that be a great business to be in? Oh my gosh, yes. Instead of, instead of my competitor who's selling fentanyl, this is what I look at my competitors, the fentanyl distributors, the heroin distributors, the methamphetamine distributors, the benzo distributors, the counterfeit medication distributors. I call them my competition. The difference is they have billions of dollars, they have no restrictions, and they have no value system whatsoever other than to increase their own market share and make more money selling what it is they think creates that opportunity for them. So that's that's kind of how I look at the treatment business and education and prevention. I'm their competitor, and they I irritate them because I try to help with prevention, meaning I'm pulling a consumer away from them. I can't wait. I'm 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 hoping one day someone approaches me and says, "Hey man, you're bad for my business." Yeah, you bet. <laughs> so I'm I'm weaving this I'm weaving this to your theme, Dave, because I think I I want to have if I'm going to work this hard, I really want to have fun doing it, and I, more importantly, I want to have an impact. I want to reduce stigma. I want to create an awareness around this, and I want people, you know, when they go to parties, go, "Did you hear what that guy said? Whoever whoever sold you that fentanyl." That's his competitor. We got to call Scott. We got to have Scott at these parties to talk to these people. I'd love to do it. That would be amazing. Would it? It would absolutely. Um, let me hit you with one more question um, that was brought to my attention: is that one of the pharmaceutical companies was sued, and because they were sued, they are 
filing bankruptcy, which means that they are going to no longer be producing the over-the-counter narcotics. What do you feel is going to happen to the street, uh, you know, the, the people that are abusing those drugs, that are selling those drugs, and, and the people on the streets that are taking them illegally? Do you think that it's going to push them to another direction, to a, maybe a more serious drug that's available? Well, there's there's a couple different schools of thought, and there's something no one's talking about yet, and that is once that manufacturer stops making that opioid, um, Oxycontin, and that was Purdue, just filed bankruptcy Sunday night this week, and they're the largest, I think I think they have the 99% of the marketplace on Oxycontin specifically. And that was their number one drug that they generated like $35 billion in sales since 1996 or something. Wow. Once, once that medication, listen to this, Dave, once that medication gets, uh, you know, the manufacturing stops, because here's the thing, there are lots of people out there who, and, and no one talks about this, I like to because I think it's important, who actually are prescribed Oxycontin, who utilize Oxycontin, and, you know, are in pain and they're legitimate consumers. But the difficulty with the science over time is showing us that long-term use of, of opioids for treating pain doesn't actually eliminate or reduce the pain. It, it, it confuses the brain or tells the brain, don't worry, you feel better, so you're getting better. The problem is you don't. And the Surgeon General literally just came out with that um, conclusion two years ago. It was uh, 2017, December. So I'm concerned because that consumer, who is what we'll call a legitimate consumer of a prescription medication, is going to, they don't have a replacement for that person yet. Now, you take the street consumer who is, you know, buying and selling either counterfeit Oxycontin. And when I say counterfeit, it's, it's a medication that looks like Oxy or it's a medication that looks like Xanax, and it's called counterfeit drugs. They're actually putting fentanyl into pill machines to make pills that look like Xanax and Oxycontin and other things. So the consumer thinks they're getting Oxycontin, but they're really getting other chemicals, but they're putting fentanyl in it because fentanyl is very inexpensive to make. And fentanyl is coming out of China right now in a very large way. So... This is going to create a shift in how the consumer is taking opioids. And that is really scary because no one is talking about that. And I have no idea what that's going to look like. But I do know this. 15% of our country, 15% of the 330 million, have an active addiction issue that will erupt this year. Okay? And only 10% of those will seek help. So when you look at that, that means 90% of the people have a problem won't even ask for help because they may not even know they have a problem. But what's an even more uh, glaring statistic, which is even more painful to kind of put your arms around, is science says for every one of those 15% that are walking around, okay, under the influence of something mood-altering or have co-occurring issues that are directly aggravated by mood-altering substances that they're self-medicating with, they impact seven people negatively every day. So think about that. If 15% have the issue and they impact seven out of 10 people, that's 85% Dave, of our population right now that are going to be impacted by somebody somehow throughout that day 
that is under the influence or self-medicating and is not getting the appropriate level of care or support that they need. Wow. Goodness. Wow. That's heartbreaking. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to swallow it. it. I mean, you know, obviously the, the evidence don't lie, but gosh, you know, that's just, that's such a, a heartbreaking statistic. Yeah. And, and the thing that's fascinating about the science is it's grown over time, but the, the reality is it is, it's not, I don't, look, I don't have to fabricate any of this. I don't have to make any of this up. I don't have to embellish it. It's all true. It's all out there. And when you Google it, you'll see. Right. There are studies around, there are studies around all this. So the reason I bring it up is I want, I want to heighten people's awareness. Meaning, and by the way, when I talk about the seven people that are impacted negatively, it could be someone you live with, somebody you work with, someone on, who's on the road driving, someone who's manufacturing something, someone who's assembling something, someone who's working on your car. Someone who's cleaning your teeth, someone who's cutting your hair, someone who's selling you clothes, someone who's taking your money, someone who's preparing your food. It doesn't matter. It's all over the place. There's no specific zip code for substance abuse and self-medication and mental health issues. It's everywhere. Right. And I say it like that, and I try to – people say, why are you yelling? I'm not yelling. I'm passionate. I'm passionate. I say it like that because I, I just want to raise people's awareness. And not that you need to – you know, get a spotter when you drive your car, who's your co-pilot looking out for people that are impaired. I'm just saying, look, if you're aware of this, when somebody needs help or somebody looks like they're in trouble or someone who looks like they really need a hug, your awareness is high enough to say, hey, I'm Scott. How can I help? Or is everything okay? Or would you like to talk? Or when somebody calls you and your family and they're stressed out, you're able to say, well, you know, let's sit down and talk about this. Come over for dinner tomorrow night. Let's talk about it. But that's really what I'm, and to me, that's how I reduce the stigma by building the awareness, which is the upside. And again, you know, what it does is it disarms the distributor. You know, there was a, a major bust about a year ago, and I think it was Los Angeles, and the, the, the DEA interviewed a drug dealer and said, you know, you're selling this fentanyl. And, and they, some of it had car fentanyl. It was what they call the great death. That's the elephant tranquilizer, which is, you know, I think 50 times stronger than fentanyl, 100 times stronger than heroin. Wow. And when they were busted and they were being interviewed, they asked the question, why would you sell a product? Now, all your entrepreneurs out there will get this. And, and, and it's called reverse marketing, in my opinion. Why would you sell a product that actually kills your consumer? You know what their answer was? We can't advertise as drug dealers and distributors. But every time somebody dies and they use the word fentanyl, and as a fentanyl distributor, my business goes up. Wow. Really? Because it hits the news. Right. The people, you know, and drug seekers, look, I was a drug seeker. Drug seekers go, wow, we got to try some of that fentanyl. But, you know, but here's some Narcan. You know, that's the overdose reverser. Keep yeah. it in your pocket. I mean, that's how people are going out and doing drugs today. Here's a, here's a, here's a overdose reversal medication. You can spray in your nose. You take one. I'll take one. If something happens to me. Keep an eye out for me. That you talk about risk taking. <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, I just heard this guy talk. Well, you know, I don't want to get into the negative story. I want to tell you a quick positive story about a group that I'm associated with. If that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's called. Safe Homes Coalition. 
Safe Homes Coalition. The website is makeitasafehome.org. This organization is a nonprofit. It's based here in San Diego, but an event took place in Massachusetts a couple of years ago. It's a medication removal program, meaning taking your unsafe and unused medication out of your medicine cabinet and putting it in a bag and taking it down to, you know, your local, you know, county building or wherever there's a DEA compliant drop off lot. Law enforcement has them. People aren't, a lot of people aren't going to take their meds to a law enforcement, but some of the bigger retail outlets, CVS, Walgreens, I understand they're putting drop-off boxes next to their pharmacies now. So, because in 2000, you know, love this, Dave, these are numbers your business people love. Two, 2016, 264 million, 264 million, I want to say that twice, prescriptions for opioids were written. 264 million. Wow. And according, according to studies from 2018, 61% of those prescriptions still sit in medicine cabinets. Okay? Mm-hmm. 71% of those who are addicted to opioids got, 71% got their medication from medicine cabinets. So the point is, the whole idea of Safe Homes Coalition is to educate families schools, kids, the faith-based community, employers, how to encourage their employees and staff and their families to get this stuff. And you can't throw it down the drain. Right. And you can't put it in the landfill. So we're working with groups who are DEA compliant that can incinerate and remove this stuff very safely from our community. And there's other groups I'm talking to as well. So that's something I'm very passionate about. Because if I can remove the Oxycontin, you know, the Vicodin, the Xanaxes, you know, the schedule, you know, I schedule drugs that are very dangerous narcotics and encourage people to take them down to the proper disposal area. We can save a lot of lives. We can actually, what's called reduce pediatric morbidity because a lot of the young kids who are overdosing on these opioids are getting them in their family's medicine cabinets. You know how this all started? No. Six years ago, six years ago, people were going into open houses real estate, open houses, and they were stealing medication during the open house. Wow. Think about that. So we partnered with the local real estate association, annual association of realtors, and we've talked to AMR, the local ambulance services, but our, our supervisor, Gaspar, county supervisor in our community, helped us fund it last year. We just launched in April this year, relaunched the nonprofit, and we hope to take this thing statewide and national in the next 18 months because if we can remove the opioids, the overdoses exposed to medicine cabinets, we can start to reduce overdoses in general across the board by simply educating and motivating people. Think about that. How simple that is. And you know what? That's a great business idea. It so is. How do we, how do we, monet- how do we monetize that? How do we raise resources to make that happen? Well, you contact me, Scott H. Silverman, 619-993-2738. And I'll work with you in your county, in your area. And we'll find a way to set up a program to get this thing started. It's very inexpensive. It's commonsensical. It really works. And it's really easy to do. And I'm glad you went with that one because something, oh, not directly to me, but my, my best friend, um, he is a, a veteran and he takes, um, oxy for the, the injuries that he, he received while he was, you know, a vet. Um, him right. and his wife, uh, left 
to uh, a vacation. It was just like a little small vacation. They took the kids, they left. Um, and the neighbor reported that a familiar car drove up to their, their, um, their house. And it was my best friend's wife's sister, uh, because she was supposed to house it went into the house and because he would, he's, he's very strict. He's like, you know, he has to be in like super pain to take any type of medicine at all. So he has quite a few in, in the medicine cabinet, um, you know, bottles that he just doesn't use. They're just sitting there. And I guess she went in there and just took them all, took everything. So, and the reason I bring this up is because it, it it's not just in California, it's not just in Arizona. It's it's a national thing. It's a national crisis that everybody doesn't matter where you're at, you're not out of the reach. And if it's if it's something that's affecting you, I feel that you should get a hold of Scott, and he will help you go through the steps. You want to give them your number one more time, sir? It is 619-993-2738. And you know what? If you're not sure whether you should call me or not, call me. 619-993-2738. You know what? I dare people. I dare people to call me. Everyone's hesitant. You know, oh, I don't want to bother. bother. It's not a bother. I want to drink out of a fire hose, Dave. And I want all of your audience to, to tell somebody somewhere, if you've got a situation, you've got a question, you're not sure, you're uncertain, you know, you don't know what to do next, call me. We will figure it out. Yes. One way or another. And it's it's something that I think I would like to collaborate with you on. Um, well, maybe we'll talk because I know you're you're busy. Um, just a little of my background is that I have 21 years experience in the medical field, and I have done CPR on that child that got a hold of of mom dad uncle grandpa's medicine that shouldn't have been there but they did and 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 i was the one that had to do the cpr so i i'm very i'm pretty sure you probably hear it my voice it's it's very i'm very passionate about that and i feel that it's something that as a community as a people as a whole we need to come together and we need to just kind of nip this in the butt is the best way possible I agree. And if there's anything I can do, Dave, you know, somebody calls you and said, hey, you know, this guy's the real deal. Just have him Google me. I mean, I grew up in San Diego and uh, been on the planet about 65 years now. So, and, and the good news is I know I have a pretty good I'm I'm a subject matter expert now, as I said earlier, because I kind of know what not to do because I made a lot of those mistakes. I, I figured out how to ask for help and I know how to do it. I still do it. My wife doesn't like it when I ask for help because she feels like I should be mature enough to figure stuff out. But you know what? You keep doing what you're doing if you love it. And if it's helping others, why would you ever stop? Absolutely. Okay. I know that you have a meeting to get to, sir. Um, I want to thank you so much. Uh, is there anything that I did not cover that you want to cover uh, before we, we end the show? <laughs> The only thing you haven't done is ask me if I want to come back and do another, and I'd love to be able to do that one day. But let's 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 see what happens with your audience, and what I'd love to do one day is have you gather a list of questions, and then I'll come back and answer them all. How's that sound? Oh, that would be great! Absolutely. Okay. 
but find let's find out what people don't know that they don't know and find out what they'd like to ask, but do it in a way where, you know, their name's not on it. And it would be great to come back and you have 25, 30, 40 questions that are, you know, 100 or 200, 1,000 of your listeners sent to you. I'm happy to answer any and all of them the best I can. And again, if I can't help them with something, I'll help point them in a direction where help can be gotten. That's awesome. All right, let's do that. We'll we'll set something up. Okay, sir. I know, like I said, I know you got a meeting to get to. So thank you so much. Thank you. Scott H. Silverman, 619-993-2738. All right, gang. Um, we are going to wrap that up. And I hope you enjoyed it. And like I said earlier, like Scott said, if, if there's someone that you know, or if you yourself are dealing with an addiction, give them a call. No matter the time or day. All right, gang. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you for letting me share this message. Uh, it, it was It's very important for me. If you're a fan of what I do, The World of Myth is coming on, f- no, tomorrow, Thursday. Thursday, uh, uh, October 24th, www.theworldofmyth.com. Also, if you just happen to like my writing, um, I just was a a contributor author to the Monsterthology 2 uh, anthology by Zombie Works Publications, and you'll be able to find my story in that anthology called Black Lagoon. And I think it's, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I believe it's Amazon exclusive, I think. Just Google Monsterthology 2, Zombie Works, and you will find it. All right, gang, come back next week, and we will have a regular episode because I know there's a plethora of geek stuff to talk about, and I will do my best to get caught up. Plus, we are going to start officially moving into PCE season, getting things ready. November is uh, the month where I'm going to go door-to-door, old-school door-to-door salesmen, start selling some some tables, selling some uh, tickets. And hopefully, if you're in the high desert area, you'll go to www.jayzomon, J-A-Y-Z-O-M-O-N-S, popcultureexpo.com, and take a look at what we have. And if you like it, maybe I'll see you there. All right, I'm done for this week. I am David K. Montoya, and as always, I bid you... Yeah.